I'm Patty. This is my husband, Curtis. <laughs> I'm just going to share for a moment, and then Patty's going to give you a little idea of who we are and what God has done in his grace through our lives. First of all, I, I want to say, you know, every speaker always says it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. It's also a surprise. We weren't expecting to include Oklahoma. We're on an 11-week trip through the states, and we've been down in Costa Rica, but we could not schedule this weekend. It just did not happen. And I had uh, Gordon's card in my pocket the last time he was in Barcelona. He said, if you ever get near Tulsa, please give us a call and please come. So we're surprised, but at the same time, we feel right at home. Mm -hmm. Gordon has been filling in the history of this place, and I can feel the history of Tulsa Christian Fellowship just standing here and understanding how God has used this group. It's been a pleasure to meet, and I've written the names down here because I'm getting too old to remember them. Uh, yeah, Bill, and there's two Jims here, and there's a Dave. That, where are you, Dave Troutman? There he is. He greeted me and said, hey, you remember me from Bible school. And apparently we both went to the same Bible school years and years ago. It's coming back. <laughs> and Joel, who is Finnish, where is Joel? Over here. Okay, I would try some Finnish phrases on you now, but I don't want to embarrass myself. So later I'll, I'll tell you, we <laughs> had a chance to visit Finland many times and love that beautiful country and the saunas and the... Lulu and uh, Basta and all those and kinds of things. Weekend, yeah. And, uh, of course, Steve and Emily, the one thing I've learned going from church to church is always make friends with the technical people. Because if you don't... <laughs> so I'm going to just let my wife share a little bit, and, and then we'll come back and share more. We'll see how this works. I have six minutes to tell you about 27 years of ministry in Spain. So I'm going to talk fast. I have a lot of just pictures because pictures sometimes speak louder than words. Our ministry for the last 25-some years um, has been to intentionally, intentionally and as publicly as possible live a Christian lifestyle that reflects Jesus so others can actually understand what that's all about. When you're in a country where the majority of the people have no Christian background, it's like super important that they get a chance to observe it. I'm going to steal from Curtis and just do something, because we were mentioning persecuted um, countries where such a small part of the population knows about Jesus. People think of Spain as a Christian or Catholic country, but... The, the real statistics are less than 1% are evangelical Christians. Now, could you all just stand up for, with me for just a minute? I'm going to do this, like, really fast. But sometimes we just need a visual. In America, they're telling us that somewhere between 20 and 30% now are professing evangelical Christians. Does that sound right? That's what they told us in Dallas, okay? <laughs> so we're going to assume that we're still kind of in the Bible belt, and, which is, that's changed. It used to be higher, didn't it? But, but I think as far as acting, so let's look at what 20% would look like here. You guys all sit down, and you guys all sit down. 
40, 60. Yeah, you guys would have to all sit down too. And maybe the first row here would have to sit down, right? Maybe the second row too. That's what you guys are up against, okay? Only that many people are there to share Jesus with with the, the rest of you sinners. In Spain, it's less than 1%. So what does that look like? Here we all are, and why not that group on this side of the pillar all sit down? And why not that first, that next row? Yeah, you guys sit down. And why don't you two, why don't you sit down? Could you kind of, could you kind of squat down? There you go. It's less than 1%. Less than 1%. Now, That, I just got to tell you, is a missionary paradise. You can look at it and go, oh, it's so hard, but it's a missionary paradise. And so we went over to Spain really hopeful that we could literally change the history of that place. And it was kind of interesting because what God told us to do basically was try to recognize where the need was and resource it. Do something about it. So we recognized the need and resourced it, and the need was young people. And we thought, I wonder if it's possible to change Spain from a missionary receiving nation to a missionary sending nation. And in order to do that, we had to go to kids. The good thing was we had an organization we worked with that had a program, a discipleship program for 10 to 18-year-olds. So we just jumped on board with that program, and we began to congregate what Christian kids we could find in all the churches around. Most churches, evangelical churches, had at least one teenager, all different age, you know, one teenager in their congregation. And so we pulled those guys together. This is what we looked like when we started. It was a great ministry because we had four children, and we were trying to figure out how to connect them to Christian people, too. And we just said, what are the needs? How can we learn to go out and wherever we are, talk about Jesus? They, one of the kids wanted to go to Morocco. They wanted to minister to um, Muslim people. So we went to Morocco and we're just being tourists. And somebody stopped us and said, you look like strangers here. Come into my home. This is in their, their home and tell us what you're doing here in Morocco. So we had an open platform in a persecuted country to tell them about Jesus through song and dance and testimony. Somebody else said, hey, can we go to the jails? There are a lot of people in the jails that need to know about Jesus. So we resourced them, and we went into the jails. Now, the interesting story for me is that when we went into one of the youth jails, my son, who was about 13 years old, said, hey, I'll go to school with that guy. <laughs> and so it was just like a wake-up call to the different paths that your life might take. So this, this was also the year that we let the kids choose, choose the uniforms. They were just so weird, and I thought, I, I can't believe, you know, the style that young people like. What happened with this is we all felt so ridiculous when we were walking alone. It was probably the year that we had the most unity of the team. You don't want to be found alone in an outfit like that in the dark street. So that was really cool. And then kids just started talking about their experience with Jesus to the people on the street that had gathered when we did 
um, special acts on the street. Another one said, hey, I like playing football. Can we do a football team? And we went, I guess so. We got an invitation to go to Nepal, and we didn't realize that you have to watch what season you go to Nepal if you want to play football. We went in the monsoon season. This is the beginning um, of the tournament, and this is the end of the tournament. (laughs) They had a ball. But listen, you know what happened? Because they just were out there and having fun and playing with the natives. They got an opportunity to talk to the entire village of 500 people about Jesus. Talked about a man of peace. We were over there when there was a shift in the political environment. And to be able to talk about the man of peace and pray for peace for their country amongst all of the Hindus there. It was just like a privilege. We generously say that probably 4,000 young people have been trained and launched through this discipleship program. 88 have been sent out to discipleship um, training programs, and 45 or more are in full-time ministry now in different areas. That was super cool for us to be able to look back on that and see just how that ministry grew. But, and then we started, a ch- oh, then we, um, yeah, then we were like, what do we do now? Because that kind of got a, a life of its own. It's been passed on to other leadership. And we are just like the wise circle that helps with them. Um, but my husband started looking for, where do we take young people now to train them? Where is a hard enough place to take young people and train them up in? Everybody thinks about Africa, Right. So we found a project in Africa of planting trees. We thought everybody can plant trees. So we take groups from six years old up to the eldest that's gone with us at this point was a 76-year-old wannabe missionary who went down to plant trees, made a contact down there, and now finally is on the field translating um, Bibles for Wycliffe, I think. Yeah. Um, So anyway, that's what we do every summer is we go into Africa and we plant trees. The government pays us to go down there and we get a chance to talk to them about Jesus through service. Curtis has had an opportunity to make friends with the witch doctors down there. And they've said to him, tell us why you guys are so different. What is it about you? And we gave a very educated answer because, again, it's a persecuted um, area. And they said, we know that's not the whole truth. Tell us the whole truth. And we got to tell them about Jesus who comes down to walk with us and make a change in life. And do you know what they said? Let us know when you're coming again. We want to take you and make you famous around our country. So we're like, okay, is this what we want? Yeah, we're going again next year, next summer in um, August. That's the rainy season. We'll be able to plant. If you're looking for something to test your own faith and physical endurance, come with us. This is our legacy. We had four children, and each of them is in a different ministry serving the Lord. Um, We started a church over there because that seemed like the next positive things to do, and it was going really well. It seemed like everything we did worked. I mean, we're in a country where less than 1% is Christian, so anything you do is wonderful. 
until we'd been in the church about seven years and we were expecting it to just explode, you know, and begin to plant other churches and stuff. And instead of exploding outward, it started to explode inward. And I got really nervous and I went to the Lord and I said, God, this is not going to happen here. This is not going to be a death of the ministry. You're not going to lose all our legacy in one swell swoop with divisive people and conflict problems. I said, what is the source of this problem, God? I'm going after it. And he said, thank you for asking. The name of the source is Patty Cluett. And I went, yeah, it was a little bit heavier than oh my. I was like, boy, I must have a great relationship with God because that's an answer I never would have come up with. So at least I'm listening to God. Pretty positive outlook, right? So um, I was the source. I was the source of a lot of conflict. I was the source of a lot of division. And somebody even said, Patty, I wonder if you'll ever understand God's grace. And I said, excuse me? Been in the ministry forever. Of course I understand God's grace. But just in case I don't, since God said I was part of the problem, well, the problem. Um, I went away and got some training, and that training led me into something that's called coaching, learning how to accompany people in their journey with God to a place where they can experience incredible change. So we've started a school of coaching over there. We work with pastors and Christian leaders, teaching them how to have these transformational conversations teaching them how to let God be God. Um, Through that whole process, we began to examine our life and say, what is our legacy? It's really scary when you've worked and worked on programs and you begin to see in an instant it could all be gone. And so we were like, what is it really that we are leaving to the next generation? Are they just things or is it something more? And this is where the book 3G came in. As we began to examine that, we were able to put down a few of the elements that we were learning about passing your legacy on not only to the next generation, but beyond that. So here's the master of the pulpit (laughs) with his timer. Thank you. Isn't she wonderful? Oops, I forgot to turn this. I like to say that Patty and I have a strange and wonderful relationship. I'm strange and she's wonderful. So (laughs) get ready for the strange part. As as I was sitting here this morning, and even before, I really felt this is something God has set up to be here with you today. Uh, What what I'm going to talk about, I think, is very, very relevant to where this church is in its history. So I want to pause for just a moment ask you to pray with me one more time. I've been prayed for by the elders, but let's pray together and ask God to open our hearts. Jesus, we're here this morning not because of our greatness, not because of what we've done, but we're here because of who you are. And you love us as a family. You pick us up when we fall down. You encourage us on, and and we want to hear your voice this morning. God, I want to hear it as I'm speaking. So we ask you to clear away every distraction. And help us to hear directly 
from you, God, and be encouraged and be given new vision and new insight because that's what you want to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been traveling around. This is in Costa Rica, a place we didn't expect to go. It was another surprise on this one. This is 300 people who came out every night for three nights to talk about this 3G concept. That's Patty and I in the middle of that group with the pastor. This is a 1,500-member church in Costa Rica, of all places. And uh, there's, there's been just a tremendous response, and I am here to make available this book to you. As a preacher, we know after about 30 minutes, you might retain 10% if you're really good and you're taking good notes. That's all people can retain from the spoken word. But we have a privilege this time to extend this and to give you the tools and to give you some very practical things for you as a family, for you as a church family, to, I pray, be able to take what little I'm going to be able to say this morning and to have a transformative effect. This has been transformative our life. We're, we're different as a result of what God is saying to us through this message. So this morning, I want to do three things. I want to give you a challenge. I want to tell you a sad story. I want everyone to go, oh, I'm going to tell you a sad story. Oh, come on, you can do better. I want to tell you a very sad story. That's more like it. That's more like the Tulsa I was looking for. Last night we saw the Tulsa Tough. Have, have any of you ever seen that race? My goodness, I could not believe those guys, the exertion of energy they were doing and almost hitting Gordon and I every time they came around. It was, it was a bit scary. And then I want to give you some sweaty encouragement, okay? So it's going to be a challenge, it's going to be a sad story, and some sweaty encouragement. So what, what's the challenge? Uh, we're going to do a little contest this morning. So how many of you use your mobile phone, use your calendar or your agenda on your mobile phone or your iPad or whatever? Okay, pull it out if you have it with you. And turn to your calendar, and I want your neighbor to be able to make sure this is true and you're not just lying. How many of you have at least two appointments scheduled for this coming week? How many of you? All right, that's pretty good. How many of you have at least two appointments scheduled for next month? Okay, that's pretty good. These guys are better than Texas, aren't they? How many of you guys have at least two appointments scheduled for next year? Okay. How many of you have at least two appointments scheduled for the next decade? How about for the next century? You say, well, come on, Curtis, that doesn't make any sense. Not in our perspective, but if we stop for a moment and we turn to, let's see if it works, okay, to God's perspective, when you read in the scriptures, you constantly see this word generations. You constantly see God looking at Moses or David or Samuel and not just referring to their 80, 90 years of life, but referring to what happened before and what's coming afterwards. Because God sees the end from the beginning. And you'll read scriptures like this in the Psalms. It says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. But it's not just one to the next. He talks about up to the third generation. This, 
is a reference to a tribe that he loved that did something good. So he said, up to the third generation in Deuteronomy 23.8 has a right to enter into my temple, into my presence. But he goes further, and then he talks about the third and the fourth generation. That's your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And this was the sons of Moab or somebody like that who had offended God, and he said, up to the third and fourth generation, they are not going to enter my presence. And then there was another tribe that he said, up until the tenth, that's 200 years. For 200 years, they are not going to be blessed because of what their fathers did today. That's pretty scary. You don't want to get on the wrong side of God. But then he talks about a thousand generations that his mercy is available to us. And he even talks about all generations. So God is looking at you through a generational lens. And in Joel 1.3, here it is in black and white. And I'd like you to just read this with me. Can you do that on the count of three? One, two, three. Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. And I want you to understand with me that this is not a suggestion. This is a command. God had a plan for Israel, not just to be blessed in Abraham's day, but through Isaac and through Jacob and on and on and on. And we're going to see in just a moment the tool, the way he told us to do that. And we're also going to see what happens when it doesn't work. Now we're going to start by doing some Greek historical study. How many of you listened in your high school history classes of Greek and philosophy? Anyone? Who was the father of modern philosophy? He was a Greek guy. That's your only clue. What was his name? Oh, I heard something good over here. Sock it to me? Is that what you said? Socrates, now we have a word for it, was a disruptive thinker. He didn't do like all the other professors of his day. He started an academy, and he said, my job is to be a, a, a comadrona, to be a, what is that in English? To be a, um, what's it called? <laughs> I think it was Spanish. The woman who helps people chop, midwife, that's it, sorry. A midwife, my job is to tease out the knowledge that's already inside of you. And he did this by asking questions. And that's all he did was ask questions. And he never wrote anything down. But he influenced a young man, his star disciple, whose name was? Okay. I think I heard Mosogorgoglia. Is that right? I also heard Plato. Plato means the broad one. He was a big fellow, apparently. And Plato wrote down and systematized everything that Socrates taught. And today, if you take lawyer training, they tell me, they still talk about the Socratic method, and they begin by teaching questions and answers to bring the truth out. And Plato had a star disciple whose name was? That was an easy one. I gave you a clue there. Aristotle was an amazing person. He established the basis for at least six scientific disciplines all by himself, just thinking in a different way. And here comes the surprise. Aristotle had a star student whose name was... Very few people get this. That's surprising. His name was Alexander the Great. 
Now, Alexander the Great was the greatest military general before or since. There's been nobody like him. And the surprising thing is he took four of his classmates from Aristotle's Academy, and he went on his own Greek epic journey and conquered two million square miles over three continents in 11 years. All the time, his biographers say under his pillow, he had a dagger and a copy of Homer's Iliad. And he went quoting Greek poetry as he conquered people after people. He was unstoppable. Something had started in Socrates, was refined under Plato, was put into practice under Aristotle, and Alexander took it and conquered the world. Now, most of us aren't too much involved in Greek philosophy, but let me give you another four-generation sequence. There was a guy named Abraham. He was an idol worshiper from Ur of the Chaldees, and God saw something in his life that he liked. And Abraham had a son whose name was... You guys are a little better on this one. He had several sons, but Isaac is the one we know. And Isaac had a son whose name was... You guys are doing good. We won't take time to talk about some of the negative things that Abraham passed on through his seed, bending the truth, doing things like that. But Abraham established an inflexible faith, a style of obedience that was different than had ever been seen before. And Isaac was there with him. Isaac was there with him on the mountain when his radical obedience to God nearly cost Isaac his life. And he saw and experienced that together with his father. And Isaac had a son whose name was, several, Jacob. And Jacob had many sons, but one of them became a world ruler. Who was it? Joseph. When you read Joseph's story, you read about an incredibly resistant young man. I don't think I would have made it. He was sold by his brothers to Bedouin traders. They took him to Egypt. He was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in jail. And then while he's in jail, he rescues the cupbearer and the baker by interpreting their dreams. He says, please remember me when you go to Pharaoh. And they forgot him. And there he is in jail until probably at least his 30s, wondering where is God, I'm sure. But Joseph inherited something from his fathers that was a foundation that stood the test and resulted in sudden opportunity and an ability to administrate and to rule that was world class. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great. This is what can happen. This is what I believe God is looking for from the parents and the grandparents who are in this church is not to watch this church slowly die with a wonderful history. And to think, wasn't it great back in the 70s? I was saved in the 70s, and I remember those days, and we were talking back and forth of Calvary Chapel and Jesus people and all the different movements that were birthed at that time. And can I say it? The, the, the glory days of Tulsa Christian Fellowship. They are there, and they are there to remember. But the best is yet to come. But it's going to take some intentional work to see that happen. This is what we've discovered. And 
I want to tell you what the key is now. This is what God said to do, to pass the important things in your life, the lessons that have cost you all your life to learn. God's desire is that those be passed to the next generation. And how do we do it? I want you to read this with me together too out loud, just to get that other part of the brain working. You ready? Let's read this together. These words which I am commanding you today, come on, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Now many of us know this scripture, and I just want to ask two questions. What? What is God telling us to do? It's pretty clear. He said, teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them. What? The verse before, these words which I am commanding you today. And here's, here's how this becomes more interesting. When are we to do this? When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I don't think there's four more routine things we do in life than go in, come out, sit down, and rise up. Now, he didn't say, teach these things in Sunday school, and that's enough. He didn't say, preachers, preach these things on Sunday, and that's enough to see this legacy, to see this faith be passed from one generation to another. He said, in the most simple, mundane places possible, this is where values are passed. And I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about that because I, I want to get to a sad story. First of all, I want to take a look at modern families, though. You know, one of the most basic times of passing values, I'm about ready to lose my earpiece here. These things are really wonderful when they work right. Is that... Okay? Okay. Used to be the family meal table was a time. What's happened today? What does it mean? How are you doing? This is a pretty good picture of the modern family meal in the 21st century. Now, I'm a fan of technology. I'm not going to say technology is the tool of the devil. But every generation has a different challenge on how they handle the advances in technology that have a tendency to isolate. I can't tell you how many restaurants I've been in, and, and you watch and you see a young couple there, obviously on a date, and they're eating, and then they both pull out their mobile phones and they're checking their social networks instead of talking with each other. This is just one of the things that we face, an electronic isolation that is growing, and that is a tendency of the current culture that has its good part but has its bad part because I'll tell you what, parents, pastors, leaders of teams, employers, if you don't establish the values in your second generation, this will. And I read an awesomely terrible statistic the other day that said that 60% of all pornography on the internet is consumed by young people between 12 and 16 years old. That should scare you. That should scare all of us when we think about the moral excellence of our next generation. We think about who's teaching them. 
what their sexual life should be like, what family is like. Pat and I are running into all around the world. We've taught this stuff in Finland and in Romania and in France and elsewhere. And we're finding so many young people who are afraid to get married and to have children. They just see it as too complex. They're being told by their social media that this whole family thing is, eh, you know, it's too difficult. I don't think I'm as good as my parents and they didn't do so good with me. And so what's the use? The Bible says children are a gift of the Lord. And there are some disconnects that are taking place that we may not even be aware. But it is going to reduce the effectiveness, should Jesus tarry, in the next generation unless we stop, examine our lifestyles and say, are we effectively passing the things that are most important to us to our next generation? Or are we allowing their social networks to pass on to them whatever it wants? Here comes the sad story, and it comes with a theological question. Why did Israel choose a king? How many of you know the story? Samuel was leading Israel. He was doing a fantastic job. He's one of the monumental, honest, integral leaders of the Old Testament. You can't find too much wrong with Samuel. And at the end of his life, the people came to Samuel and said, we want a king. Why? Who, who could give me an answer? This is what I hear this. I've preached that, and it's partially true. But when you read the scriptures, should I get rid of this? Oh, he said to be like the other nations. What did you say? Wow, he got it. Most of us say because they wanted to be like the other nations, and that's true scripturally. But I want you to read the affirmation of what he's saying there. Read what it says here. His sons, however, did not walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside to dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And here's what they said. Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. I want to pause for just a moment and let you feel the impact of this. Samuel, one of the most righteous men, probably a charter member of Tulsa Christian Fellowship. He was there. He was honest. He kept his integrity solid. And at the end of his life, apparently doing so much good, he didn't have time to spend with his family. Israel came and said, we don't want your sons. There's no way we're going to serve these guys. Give us a king like everybody else. And on the day Samuel died, all trace of his influence was erased. I want you to think about that. A more righteous man you couldn't find at that time. But everything he worked for was lost because it was not passed onto either his sons or even the people he influenced. He obviously was a tremendous doer. He was a prophet. He heard from God. He spoke God's word. But he did not pass on a legacy. And the next period of Israel's life under King Saul was awful. And there's a lesson to be taken out of that, and this is especially important for believers. 
example is not enough. I want you to repeat that with me. Say it again louder. Look at the person next to you and say, example is not enough. It's a start, but it does not do the job. And we share in this book what we have learned through the last 27 years, a lot of stories and stuff. The style of ministry we were introduced to, we didn't invent it, was to take generations together and go out in ministry. And we've had the privilege of going with our children to China, to Africa, to all over the world and experience spiritual moments, key life-changing moments together as a family. Oftentimes in the church, we have a family camp, but the whole time is everybody separated out into different age groups. Now there's a time for age groups. Teenagers need to talk. Preteens need to run. Children need to do stuff. But there's also a time to be together so that people can see what's happening in the different generations. One year we were traveling on a trip much like this one. I don't remember which year. It must have been about 2009 or so. And when, when we travel back to the States, we do all we can to meet as many relatives, as friends as we can, spend time with them. And we were someplace in southern Oregon, and we heard another story about a pastor's child or a missionary's child gone bad. And it hurt us, and it actually scared us, because these guys were better than we were. They were more mature Christians. They were more spiritual than we were at the time. And we thought, I wonder if something's happening with our family that we don't know. So we locked the doors, and we declared a family meeting in our van there in southern Oregon. Stopped and parked and said, all right, you guys. You just heard this story of your friend. What's keeping you guys from following the same path? Are you into drugs? Is there something going on we don't know? No, Dad, we're okay. Well, then what is it? My oldest daughter piped up and said, family vacations. And I said, what? <laughs> uh, come on, where's the great parenting, telling stories, you know, all these good things that we try to do. And she said, no, no. When, when we spend time together, informally, in between the laughs and the stories and card playing, you don't have another meeting you have to get to. We become the center of attention. And somewhere in the midst of that, we begin to understand what it means to be a cluet. We hear the stories of your childhood and how you got married and all these type of things. And, and, and that helps us with our identity. And I was absolutely floored. I didn't expect that at all. But we've begun to understand how important our time spent together when what we call teachable moments occur. Those moments when a child or a teenager or an adult child, their heart opens up and suddenly you're on a very deep level, touching their very values. Those moments can occur when a five-year-old comes up to his mom who's washing the dishes and ordering pizza because she doesn't have time to cook and the child pulls on her apron and says, Mom, where do babies come from? And her mom says, what's the typical answer for a good mom at that time? Go ask your father. <laughs> That's a teachable moment. Or they come home and say, you know, Billy's family just got a divorce and, 
and, and he's really angry. Why, why is he so mad? What's wrong with a divorce? Or they come and they say, you know, my friend brought a, a marijuana cigarette today and passed it around to me, and I tried it. It was really interesting. Those are, those are teachable moments. Or I just came back from the most wonderful spiritual experience in my life. I went out and told everybody, and when I did, somebody hit me in the face. Why would they do that? Those are teachable moments. And the problem is, our current culture is limiting and limiting and limiting those times when generations are together, and when the older can pass on to the younger the whys. Why we do these things? Why do we sing in church? What's the history of TCF? Why are we still here? Why don't we dissolve and go into different places? What's our purpose here in this community? These are the values that many of you have and are the DNA of your spiritual background. Are they being passed on to a new generation? There's, there's three principles that we talk about in this book, and again, I'm not going to take a lot of time. But beyond value of experiencing life together is learning how to link principles to experience. Your child just comes home. They went to the entrance exam to go into medicine at Oral Roberts, and they didn't pass the test. Devastating moment. Their entire career, their entire life seems to be in shambles. Are you or somebody there next to them to hear them, to help them see a different side of that, and suddenly see them say, oh, this is where we put our life in God's hands. <laughs> I never did understand that. I thought we do that, but we control it. And now I remember, and you're helping them attach values to experiences. Because you see, the way our mind works, it codes memories according to how much emotion is attached to that moment. There's a doctor named Daniel Conahan, and he says every one of you has about 20,000 moments each day. Most of them are neutral. Most of them are neither good nor bad. They're just things you brush your teeth. You know, you're not going to remember that tomorrow. But that disappointment, that euphoric moment, that sad moment, that is what creates a memory that's going to last longer. And if somebody is there to help them understand what that means, a value gets passed. Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes says, his slogan is, live and don't learn. There's a lot of people who do that because this connection is not taking place. So I, I, I want to take you down. We've talked about a challenge. We've talked about a sad story of Samuel. Now I want to give you some sweaty encouragement. Are you ready for that? When we first wrote this and started passing this around to some of our friends to give us their feedback, they said, you know, this is all really good, but... I wish I'd known this when I was a young parent. Now I'm 60, my children are grown, they hate me, they hate my religion. Something went wrong, what do I do now? And there's a whole chapter we said, I don't know, but we're going to make some interviews. And we started to interview many of our leader friends and who we knew their situation with their children was dicey. And, and we said, what did you do? And they told us. And there's some hope for some of you today who are listening to this and saying just that. Well, this sounds all well and fine, but I, I, I missed my chance. It's not over. 
It's not over. It's hard work once a break has taken place, but it is not over. There is hope. God is a creative God. It's not just with families. It's with leadership teams. It's with pastoral teams. These are principles that are God's principle, and they apply everywhere. In 1991, my wife and I, that beautiful young lady and that handsome young man, and we had three children at that time, we happened upon a folkloric club in Barcelona called the Castellers. Has anybody ever heard of the Castellers? There's a picture of them on the front of the book here. And we, we happened along this cafe bar there and we saw these posters of these guys who were building human towers 10 levels high. And it was really fascinating. I, I knew that that occurred. I thought, you know, it was a statue or something. They said, oh, no, no, come to the back here into this gym. And we go there, and we're in the practice session of these guys that they do three times a week, practicing building the structures it takes to have one layer climb on top of the shoulders of the other until they get to the top ten levels high. And it's a... It's a tremendous architectural phenomenon, this thing, because they have to have even pressure coming from every side, right? And so you, you can see what's happening. And Patty and I did this. Men and women, children, we're all at the bottom pressing chest to back as tight as we can and then grabbing the elbow of the person in front so that there's no flex because there needs to be absolute even pressure on the base very strong before anybody goes up vertical. And when it's done, it's an amazing thing, and it's an amazing illustration of what I'm sharing with you this morning, of how one generation literally can climb onto the shoulders of another until the youngest generations are the most visible, and they're the ones that people see. But let's see what happens underneath. If the sound is on, I want to take you to Catalonia, to our part of the world, and to see how this works. They're speaking in Catalan. La bèstia indomable, com es coneix a l'argot popular casteller. Vinga, col·loquen el pis de quarts d'aquesta construcció. Ells l'acabaran de validar, acabaran de veure com estan les posicions. També hi ha un canvi destacat en el pis de quarts d'aquest castell. Els quins comencen a pujar el Toni Baclevis. Bé, per tant, intent vàlid de la torre de 8 sense folre dels castellers de Vilafranca. Un altre moment per a la història en aquesta jornada castellera és el tercer castell sense forra dels grans que veiem en aquesta jornada. Col·loquen ja el pis de quins. Aquesta tres important, aquesta consistència del pis de tres i també un pis de quarts gran dels castellers de Vilafranca. Quins col·locats? És una torra molt alta. Vinga, la Marta i la Núria col·locades. Ja estan acabats. El pis de dosos comencen a pujar i també farem portar per posar la canalla que puja a seguir dels dosos. Vinga, Carles. Vinga, 
Dos os colocáis, casualetes ya sobra. Ah, dos os colocáis. Venga, Sony. Venga, a es como la casualeta. Venga, que la portan de. Marta, 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 la casualeta. Casualeta, la casualeta. Sony, venga, casualeta colocada. La chaneta la envía. Atención, la chaneta que la envía. Casualeta colocada. La chaneta tres cops de peo. Venga, Sony, ya es al. Apuntan a carregar la torre de Wii. Venga, Sony, ver, Sony, ver. Sony, ver, torre de Wii. Carregada. Dos castellers en la fleca. Comienza la baixada. Tranquils que va bé. A veure el pista aquí s'està tranquil. L'enxeneta fa via. L'aixecador la fa via. La castelleta surt. La poden descarregar. Sortiran dosos. La té la fa descarregar. Surten dosos. La tenen. La tenen. La veurem. La veurem descarregada. La veurem descarregada. Sí, senyor. Els qui surten ja la tenen. Torre de vuitens. Sant Fèlix 2012, Sant Fèlix 2017, a la plaça de la Vila, en aquesta gran jornada, els castellers de Vilafranca descarreguen la setena de la seva història. Impressionant, Cugat, quin castellers. És el moment més difícil que hi ha. Això és l'espectacle més gran. És descarregar la torre de buit sense folre, amb la pujada amb alguna brandada lateral que semblava que augurava algun perill, però realment amb tot a dalt s'hi patien pels quins, s'hi patien pels quins i per la cana. Pretty impressive, isn't it? We were in the club, my son used to climb up to the top before they had helmets. And the towers do fall. There are many things we could say about it, but I want to take just a moment and let you say something about this, this video. We've been talking about passing on your legacy as a church, as an individual. Just turn to the person next to you and, and, and just share, having seen that video, what struck you, what impacted you about your role in passing on values to the next generation? Where do you see yourself in that? What, what impacted you? Just, just take two minutes. And just share it with one another and say, boy, this got to me. Find somebody if you're by yourself. welcome to come to Catalonia and see this live because this happens every week. There are these people doing these towers in different parts of the country. I just want to make a couple of observations and then we're, we're going to close. How many of you saw the man probably in his 50s or 60s at the bottom? He's working so hard he's bitten his lip. Did you see the blood that was here as he's telling the guy next to him, come on, he's saying, bam, which is vamos and Catalan, come on, come on, we can do it. That's pretty impressive when you think he's probably got, I don't know, maybe 1,200 pounds on his shoulder. But did you know there's a layer underneath that that nobody sees? Because you see, he's on the second layer. 
and everybody's holding up his behind with their hands like this, but they're down here, and there's a layer of people nobody even sees. And these are the millers, these are the squared off people. And they're down there, and nobody even sees their suffering, but they're staying sure and secure. And it's only when those first couple of generations are secure that there is enough strength for a child to rise to the top and be triumphant and say, look what I did. I'm sure Joseph could have said, look what I did. Look at how great I am in Egypt. But he recognized the generations that had gone before and had built the faith in him. There's some of the children here I believe God wants to use and to raise up. There's an age group between 18 and 22 years old. As you look back through history, that's where the great disruptors, Christian disruptors, when they began their ministry. It was at that time. They're just frustrated. They're, they can't stand the status quo. And they've got just enough strength to begin. And they disrupt everything there is. They're the Lauren Cunninghams, the George Verwers, the Billy Grahams. You can name just about everyone and you'll find right at that age. And you know what the enemy's chief desire is? Is to lose those children at that age out into his devices. And it happens oftentimes because we aren't intentional in passing by us. We assume they'll pick it up. They'll get it. But there's so many missionaries' kids and pastors' kids who don't get it. Instead, they get resentment because they were told what to do but never experienced where the energy came from in their fathers. I've met young people who were angry at their missionary parents because they were so hospitable. There were always people in the house, but my parents never had time for me. I've met others who were very generous and were always giving money, but could never afford a decent gift for their kids at Christmas time. And those are exemplary lifestyles, but if they don't take the time to help their children understand. And I have other parents, friends of ours in Switzerland, who one year took a bread truck to Romania. They, they, they had a bakery and a truck. And they took a family vacation with their family to Romania and baked bread and gave it out free on the streets of Timisoara and Bucharest. What an experience for their family to together work hard and to see the fruit of their labor and to understand some people received it gladly, other people cheated in line, and, and to experience those things and daily to kind of recap what happened today. What did we see? There's so much value in that. And I guess part of the challenge for you as a church is to think about what you're doing, how you're programming, how often do you bring families together or bring the generations together and let them work together and build memories together and allow for the younger generation to have a moment to ask the older generation, how does this work? We set up a small group uh, ministry in the church we were in and we began by having, okay, this is the singles group, this is the high school group, this is the women's group, this is the men's group, and those are very effective small groups. But we begin to find that the singles liked being with young married couples. Why? Because they had the wisdom for the next step in their life. 
And, and we'd find with these mixed groupings, the singles would oftentimes sit down with a married couple before or after the, the time and say, you know, what's it like being married? What should I prepare for? I don't seem to be doing very well in dating. Is, is there something missing in the way I'm presenting? Wow, those are teachable moments. So this is a challenge for you as individuals and as a church to understand your role and your lifetime is not your lifetime. Your success is going to be what you implant into another generation in such a way that they can take it to a third generation. This is 3G. This is what I have to share with you in my heart this morning. And, and I want to just close in prayer. I want to pray for you, and then I want you to pray for one another. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the heritage that it has that's been passed down from the early leaders until this day. But God, I know there is a rumbling desire here for more, saying, Jesus, we want more. We want to see you break out in this generation. We want to see your revival come and affect our teenagers and our preteens. And God, we want to pray for that together. We, we want to cry out to you and say, yes, Lord, amen. This is what you want to do. But I pray, God, for a type of determination that is like that man biting his lip and saying, I am going to stay at this until this tower is built. I'm going to create a foundation so that the young marrieds and the children who come after me will have this same determination and will be able to go higher than I was ever able to go. I pray for that spirit to come and invade the hearts of the elders and the grandparents and the parents and the older teens so that the younger teens and the preteens and the children might be raised up and might be great, great-hearted and great-spirited young men and women who understand the times right now they understand their generation in ways we never will. And I pray for an ability to release them, God, to take their heritage and to spread here in Tulsa and around the world what you want to do through them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I, I just want to close by having you with that same person who you shared with before. Pray for one another right now. Pray for a receptiveness to the Spirit of God to pass on the things that you've learned. Encourage them. Whether they're married or single, we all have things to pass on. And just pray an encouragement for one another and then I'll hand this back. Okay, so take a moment that person that you shared with and just encourage them to be a 3G person.
Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Grandparents, you have a role to play that is so important. It's the keepers of the vision, the keepers of the DNA. Parents, you are on the firing line. And the children who are away in Sunday school someplace, they are the ones that God is going to call to raise up among their brothers and to stand up and to be a sentinel and to say, this is the way, follow me, as some of you did in the 70s and the 80s. It's his plan. But if that chain is broken, there's an old Swedish proverb that says, Cut your chains and you're free. Cut your roots and you die. And so those of you who are roots here, you are so needed. But God wants to fill up these chairs with this next generation and the generation after that. And he can, but it's not easy. It's not easy to retool the way we do things, to open up the doors to different styles of worship and music and decoration and all the things that... That, that happened. And Patty and I have learned one thing in King's Kids. It's that we can have a professional music group up in front. And young people will, ah, yeah, yeah. And we can have a young people's music group up in front that aren't very good. And every young person is right with them in every word. Because they see themselves. And so mixing the generations and having these, if you want young people, you've got to have young people up in front. That's, that's for free. If you want to see a new generation happen, you've got to intentionally bring in younger leaders who may not be as skilled, who may not be as knowledgeable, and not throw out the older leaders. They need you to guide them. I'm not going to take any more time. We, we have these books back here. I'll be happy to sign them. If They're for $10. If you don't have $10, Come to me, we'll make a way. We want you to have this if you'll read it. Because there's some very practical stuff that I just don't have time to share. So, Gordon or Bill, thank you.